And standing for the reading of the gospel from Luke's gospel, the 24th chapter, beginning at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation which you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it's now the third day since it's happened. And moreover, some some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and they did not find his body. And they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He appeared to be going further. But they constrained him, saying, No, stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them, who said, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Our children are dismissed for children's church. It's fun watching them sprint out of the sanctuary. Several years ago now, on a cold Missouri morning in early spring, I found this place. I'd been told they wanted the minister to come. They said there was a man child there, a man 53, 54 years old, with the intelligence of a five-year-old, and they wanted the minister to come. 
I've been warned about poverty. I've been warned about substandard conditions. I didn't know what I would find. I wasn't sure I'd found the place because when I got to where I thought it was, all I could see were two walls and no windows or doors. And I hoped that one of the other walls had at least a door. And that's when I saw the dog change. Worrisome. I don't know if the dog is chained because he's mean or if he's mean now because he's been chained. I'm not fond of chaining creatures. But in my mind, I'm mentally measuring the chain to see if there's room to get to the door if there's one there so that the dog can't harass me or do worse. And then I noticed there was something about the dog, a tiredness, a brokenness. Maybe just too old to care about me. Maybe I didn't look like I had enough meat on my bones. I don't know, but he wasn't going to bother me. So I stumbled across frozen mud with some cats scurrying out of my way. And I found a door. And I knocked on it. And a woman, the palest human being I have ever seen in my life, answered the door. I thought sunlight must never have touched your skin at any time. told her who I was, and she invited me in. And as soon as I stepped forward, I hit this, this wall of humid air, humid with urine. And it just took your breath away. And I was pretty sure I didn't want to breathe too much of it. There was a makeshift wood stove, half of a 55-gallon drum, just squatting in the floor, heating the place at least 90 degrees. And a makeshift vent pipe going up through the ceiling. I wasn't sure it vented enough. The floor seemed to move every now and then, and I would notice it was just roaches on maneuvers. And she took me to another room. It was a very small place. You could fit ten of them inside this room. And said, sit here on the bed with him. A few G.I. Joe dolls on the bed. And he's there with his head down. I wrapped up my coat as tightly as I could because I didn't want any little hitchhikers going home with me. It's not good for your marriage when you bring those things home. And she said rather fervently to this man, child, tell him what you told me. And he keeps his head down. He won't look at me. And he says, I had a dream. I said, really? Can you tell me about the dream? I saw Jesus in my dream. He said it was time to go with him. I said, well, what do you think? And he blurted out, I don't want to go. I want to stay here with my mama. And then a woman appeared. I didn't see her when I came in. I don't know where she was. You couldn't hide in this little place. But suddenly she's there and she's over my shoulder and she's saying, now, this is the preacher. You say what the preacher tells you to say. You repeat after him so that you can go to heaven when you die. I'm not about to treat a five-year-old that way. I turned back to him and I said, what would you like? Thinking there are G.I. Joe dolls here. We'll do a little play therapy or something. And he said, I want you to read me from the Bible. That surprised me. But in that Bible, what would you like to read in that Bible? He said, Luke, the 31st chapter. 
I'm no scholar, but I do know Luke doesn't have 31 chapters. So I said, maybe you mean the last chapter? Yeah, that's the one. So I opened it up to this chapter that I read a moment ago, and he casually reached over and flicked a dead roach off the page and said that was the one he wanted. I told him what it was about. He said, yep, that's the one. And so I started reading. And in my mind, I'm saying, I wonder why he wants this one read. Why now? How is it that he connects with this story? And it begins to dawn on me that he's been told by word and by attitude that he's going to go someplace he doesn't want to go. And he really wants to know where's God. Two guys walking the road to Emmaus, a place of no distinction. Maybe just a place you go when you have no place to go. Maybe a place you run to when you're seeking a geographical cure for grief and that never really works. Maybe a place of safety, someplace further away from the authorities that would put them in prison or kill them. I, think, I see their body language as of the defeated, the shoulders dropped, little energy. I remember in the news a few years back, an Albanian woman stopped at the Kosovo border, and she just wants to cross the border to get over where her family has already made it across. But now the armed guards are there, and they have their rifles, and they push her back. You cannot cross. And she tries to explain, my family's over there. You cannot cross. But all that matters in the world to her is over there, and she can't go. And she steps back and she stumbles and she begins to walk away aimlessly on rubber legs. I see these two walking to Emmaus aimlessly. It says they stood still, looking sad. Their losses on so many levels. Their friend, their champion, the one they pinned their hopes on. Their dreams of freedom. Their image of themselves as champions of the people. The trust in their own religious leaders betrayed, like discovering your own priest as a pedophile. And they're going nowhere. Just that place you go when there's nowhere to go. We may know this road. When shock, when grief, when pain, when trauma challenge the way we think about life, the ways we think about God. And there are times when trauma produces a kind of spiritual homelessness and aimless wandering. I saw the woman on a Holocaust documentary who talked about when she witnessed the Nazis' brutality to children. And she said, that's when I stopped talking to God. We know this road. Life doesn't turn out as planned. When I perform a wedding, there's a place in the wedding where I, I say to them that everybody here hopes you have a life full of, of passion and excitement and adventure and hope. And many of us here know it will also include grief and failure and disappointment, even times of despair. And that we make promises for those times, not the easy times. Or maybe you were a minister and you stood for racial justice and you found yourself without a job. 
One day you're wondering and praying how to lead your church to, to be racially open. And the next day you're wondering how you'll feed your children. Or maybe you make some mistake and you get caught and all that matters goes away. And you find yourself alone on the floor sleeping in an apartment. Or maybe you're 72 years old and your stepdaughter is hopelessly lost in heroin. And you and your wife adopt those three children and take them home. And you watch them eat at your table like animals. Because you see, they don't believe there's another meal coming. They've not been able to trust that for a long time. And it takes them a week to get over this kind of behavior because they finally figure out that you keep the refrigerator full. Or maybe you escape the drunken abuse from a parent or a spouse, but the darkness still comes. Or miss maybe a beloved pastor, the only one you've known, retires. And you really deeply miss him. We know this road. And on this road, we usually think of Jesus showing us what to do. But I find the disciples enlightening on this road. They did several things. And one of those things is they're talking about what happened. They didn't just kind of sit and be quiet. They're talking about it. When your world is shattered into a thousand pieces, they're trying to put it back together. It's as if somebody blew up the revelation window here, this beautiful window, and the shards are just everywhere, and they're trying to put them back together somehow. And then the women have told them something astounding. He is alive. And the response is, well, they didn't see him. I mean, who goes to the cemetery expecting a grave to pop open? They're asked to believe astounding things in the worst of times. Several years ago now, I met with this woman. Her father was the one who was dying. He was not able to talk, and I had lots of good conversations with her, lots of depth We did his funeral. She'd emphasize that she wanted me to talk about resurrection at his funeral, and I did. Seven months later, I got a call from the funeral home. And because I'd done her father's funeral, she wanted me to come and do her son's funeral, who two days earlier had been killed in an accident. When I went by the funeral home to see her, she had her back to me at first, and when she turned around and saw me, she put her hands up. Just no, no. You represent that resurrection stuff, and I can't hear it now. To believe astounding things in the worst of times. They're trying to figure it out. And then something I think that's so often overlooked in our whole world, listening takes place. Jesus joins them on their journey and they're talking and he's listening to them. He asks a question out of curiosity but otherwise doesn't interrupt the telling of their story. 
He listens to them. It's a marvelous assertion to say that the very one sent from God actually listens to you and to me. And then he got to talk. And marvel of marvels, they listened to him. Something happened in the listening. Later they'll say their hearts just burned within them. He took the shattered pieces of their heritage and began to rearrange them like an artist, presenting a new mosaic and asking them to see the world differently. Muhammad Ali is quoted as saying, if you think the same things at 50 years of age that you thought at 20 years of age, then you have wasted 30 years of your life. It's a beautiful thing here. Their willingness to be taught. This openness to an unexpected source of knowledge. Oh, something happens when we listen. Kathleen Norris wrote a book called Amazing Grace. And in that book, she tells the story of an elementary school teacher who wanted her second graders to write. She asked them to make all the noise they wanted to make. They could pound their desk, get stomp their feet, they could yell, they could scream. And you know, second graders, they're capable of making a lot of noise whenever. And so they did. But at a given signal, they were to stop. And then listen to the silence. Now, she said, write about that silence. Second graders now. One of them wrote, it's like we're waiting for something. It's scary. Another said, silence is like a silkworm making its silk. Another said, silence reminds me to take my soul with me wherever I go. Something happens in the listening. I think it's called learning. And they go on down the road. Day's about over. Jesus acts like he's going on, which is a crazy way to travel in those times. You didn't travel alone. You didn't travel after dark. No Motel 6 was leaving the light on for you. Dangerous thing to do. And they implore him to stay with them. They practice hospitality, one of the highest values of their culture. They welcome the alien in their land. They welcome the stranger in their gates. They welcome the outsider. And they practice hospitality with Jesus. Come stay with us. A couple of years ago, down at the children's hospital, I sat with a Muslim woman. They'd fled the crazy lawlessness of Somalia. And she was here with her children. Her husband was still in a refugee camp. So she's coping as best she can, doesn't know the language. And her boy is really, really sick. And he's having surgery, a brain surgery. And they've carefully explained to her that the pretty good chance they're going to have to come in and say he didn't make it, that they couldn't save him. So we're waiting. Two people, different religions, different languages, different cultures, just sitting and waiting. And her niece came. Her niece does speak English. 
And she told her she'd brought her a thermos of her favorite tea. And the woman got up and poured out a cup of tea and set it on the floor between us. And I could see it steaming, and I moved over a little bit because I didn't want to get scalded if I kicked it over, and I certainly didn't want to kick over her tea during this time. And she motioned to me. And the niece said, no, you don't understand. The tea is for you. For me. In one of the worst moments of her life, she was practicing that cultural value of hospitality. She had so little to give. And she gave me her favorite drink. I think it's a great act of faith to practice the best we know in the worst of times. Then they had a meal, and Jesus did something that we do here once a month. He took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And in that simple gesture of gratitude and sharing, they understood who this was, who was giving this to them. Luke's gospel begins with the temptations of Jesus. With the devil saying to Jesus, just do dazzling things. Change the stones into bread. He won't do it, but here he just breaks bread and gives to them. The devil tells him to worship me and I'll give you a lottery full of followers. But here they're just two. Skydive off the temple, do something that just wows them. Give them a show. Jesus basically says, God is not in that. But here, here's this God in this simple gesture. I went back to that home where the boy, man, man, child was after his funeral. Went back to see his mom. She invited me in, asked me to sit there on on the the bed. And I'm right next to the bedside commode. She tells me the equipment company is coming to pick it up. And I can't imagine they're going to carry it much further than the backyard where they'll set fire to it. And she tells me she's afraid of storms. We'd had a storm the night before. She tells me she hates being alone. And I ask her, what do you do when you're afraid, when you're alone? And she said, I pray, like any sane person knows the answer to that. She tells me her husband died when the boy was 18. And she's been doing this for 35 years by herself, caring for this child man. She tells me somebody stole one of the GI dolls she sent to the funeral home to be placed in the casket with him. They recognized some market value, I guess, and they stole it. Then she tells me, I have something for you. I can't imagine there's anything in this place that I should take with me or that I want to take with me. But she rummages for a moment. She comes out with one of those funeral home cards that has the praying hands on the one side and funeral information and the 23rd Psalm on the other. 
her son's name. And she thrust it at me. And in that gesture, I got it. The words of Jesus, oh, slow of heart to believe, they're directed at me. But I got it in that gesture. He may not have been much in your world of degrees and jobs and money making, but he was my son. And I loved him. And my love made his life valuable. And I want you to remember him and remember that. And I realize that for all of the talk of this being of God-forsaken place, it's not God-forsaken at all. That God's been there all along, looking like this pasty-skinned woman. And I realize that wherever love is, there, there's God. Amen.